Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. Today, you're going to meet Josh Roots. Josh is a graduate of Annapolis, the United States Navy Academy, which means he's really smart and really competitive. Um, he became a Marine when he graduated, an officer in the Marine Corps, which I think you can get a picture of what that looks like. He served our country overseas. He flew Cobra attack helicopters. We'll talk about that. That's how I met him. No, I was not in the service. No, I wasn't in the Middle East. But uh, Suzanne Brockman, Ed Gaffney, and myself were on a writing tour, a book tour, rather, and um, we collected materials because at that time, the leadership of this country did not prepare our fighting men properly. And we had to ship them things like hand wipes um, and uh, juice boxes and toothpaste and toothbrushes and romance novels. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what he did while he was there, um, what he then did when he came home, and um, how he became a writer. Um, he writes urban fantasy. Um, he had a warlock series. Uh, Undead Chaos was his first book. It's still out there. I represented him at that time. We got a multi-book deal. Um, when I stopped being an agent, he went with a different agency. We're going to talk about all of that stuff and more. Um, if you want to get this podcast regularly, make sure you subscribe. Rate this podcast. There's lots of things you can do. We'll talk about that more on the other side of this. But right now, here's the amazing Josh Roots. Josh Roots, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. Thank you so much for being with me today. Uh, it is an honor to be here. Thank you. I was going to be on uh, Is It Is It Possibly Legal, but uh, they didn't have quite the, the same repertoire. So, Oh, I, I'm glad I won out. Um, I'm going <laughs> to, and I'm probably going to say this in the intro, but just to be safe, um, you and I have known each other for years. You were a client of mine when I was a literary agent. But we actually met when you were uh, actively in the Marine Corps and serving overseas. Um, and I'm technically not sure what your rank or your position was, but I know that you flew uh, Cobra uh, attack helicopters or a Cobra attack helicopter. And at the time it was the, I don't know what we technically call these things. It was the second time in Iraq for this country. and. Um, I was working with Suzanne Brockman, and, and this sounds strange, but we adopted your unit uh, to provide things to your unit that unfortunately, for whatever reason, weren't being provided to you. Um, and we boxed up uh, through uh, donations from re Suze's readers, uh, toothpaste, toothbrushes, all sorts of things that were really needed and wanted over there. And um, that's how we met, I think. That's correct. Yeah, it was. Uh, and I mean, it was it was some stuff that was helpful, like baby wipes. You know, those are always uh, useful out in the desert. Uh, it was other things, too, like uh, boxes of uh, steamy romance novels, which apparently are also needed in the middle of a, a combat zone. So uh, a couple Who knew? of conversations that I had with my, my commanding officer with, uh, you know, pulling me in. It's like, hey, Roots, uh, how come there's a box of tawdry romances that have been delivered to a uh, the, the squadron's library. And um, it's like, I, 
Right, while have, you're not have, in your own country, by the way. You're right, in a country with a whole bunch of other rules, perhaps, about those things. That was not was an issue. Right. Okay, cool. Not, well, I wanna, not an issue. Okay, <laughs> I want to back up to... Um, so your story, to me, is a fascinating one. Uh, it's far from older. But I want to... Some things I know, some things I don't know. So where did it all start? Where, did, where were you born and raised? Uh, born in Lafayette, Louisiana. I, uh, my parents were, um, my family's been all over the map. Uh, but at the time, my dad had, uh, he was a Vietnam veteran, a helicopter pilot as well. Uh, he flew transport helicopters, the uh, CH-46 Sea Knight, which is the Marine Corps version of the Chinook. Um, flew it in Vietnam, did a tour, uh, was there about a year, six months of flying, and then six months, uh, seven months at Quezon during the siege. Got out, decided combat was not his thing, went to law school and uh, met my mom. Um, I'm sorry, they actually met before Vietnam, but uh, he went to law school and they got married. Uh, and he got out was of the Marine Corps fully expecting to become an airline pilot. And there were so many, I mean, it was the line out the door for the airlines was a mile long. And it was one of those, yeah, thanks kid, we'll, we'll give you a call. Um, and wound up getting involved with uh, oil. So he, he got involved with um, leasing rights for, uh, I think that he was called a landman. So he would go and negotiate with farmers about, can we come and test? You know, if we find oil, here's the percentage that you can get, all that sort of stuff. And so I was born in Louisiana and I was there six months and we moved in, in the first four years, we lived in Louisiana, Alaska, California, Texas, before moving to DC, where we sort of uh, set up shop for about nine years and then going back to Alaska for my high school years. But uh, that is incredible and gives me an idea of how you have the perfect non-accent. I don't know if people <laughs> have talked to you about trying to figure out where you're from, but my experience with people from Louisiana is they have very different ways of speaking than certainly I do. And then you do but you, i mean i have no idea what an alaska accent sounds like uh and yeah so you kind of you've been everywhere which did that did that work out well for you in terms of being able to speak and be understood no uh that that came 100 percent from my mother who was a drama major in college and as i as i grew up uh she always drilled into me that when you are when you are speaking in front of people, it is always pause and make sure that you sound like you know what you're going to say, even if you don't. And if you don't, admit that you don't. But rambling, uh, rambling to nowhere is the mark of somebody who is uncomfortable and not professional. So she wow. she drilled that in, and I took that. That was one of the best uh, lessons that I took into certainly the military and then into a civilian career wow he's I mean, doing interpretive dance and all that sort of stuff <laughs> well i mean you're one of the most well-rounded human beings i've ever met um you went to and graduated from annapolis which um why yes technically it's a free school and, and arguably one of the best schools uh, in the united states uh it's the navy's military academy right right um and it's incredible. I, I actually had a guest on whose daughter is currently a cadet. Is that or mid, 
midshipmen or cadet? Yeah, I don't mid, know. midshipmen's at, is at Navy and then cadets would be uh, Army, Air Force. Okay, so she's a mid, midshipman. And uh, I'm not sure where in her career there she is, but um, I know that in order to even apply, uh, it's a very rigorous process where you have to get uh, your elected representatives involved. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, some people are the sons or daughters of Admiral Impressive Last Name or, you know, something like that. Those of us that were the, the half of our high school class that made the other half look really good um, had to have people that, that uh, had either stars or bars or um, representatives to, to write letters of recommendation like this individual does not eat paste. Uh, they do in fact know how to open a push door versus a pull door. Uh, and then you throw it, throw it at the wind and you hope for the best. You are ridiculous. Uh, it in your presentation of yourself. Um, I happen to know uh, you're obviously a brilliant guy and uh, you obviously succeeded in those four years. Everyone I've talked to who's survived, and yes, that's what I mean, survived a oh, military yeah. academy, talks about the rigors of it, both physical and mental, and well, not just, and, and emotional. It's, it's not an easy four years, right? No, it's... Uh... It's a little different than when I talk with friends of mine who went to Texas A&M or Brown or, you know, my, my best friend went to Dartmouth and, you know, we, we chat almost daily and he'll tell stories about, oh, yes, when we were playing the Victrola and I had a fireplace in my dorm room and, you know, he's like, what was it, what was it like at the Naval Academy? It's like, well, when we were there, when, when it was, you know, when, when it was the old core, when it was really hardcore, it wasn't as easy as the kids have now. We didn't have air conditioning and slept on spring mattresses and you walked uphill both ways in the snow and you know it's uh, it is a beautiful campus i have been there it is breathtakingly stunning and the two times you truly appreciate it are i day right before you're sworn in and everybody starts yelling at you and graduation week when you're walking down stribbling walk uh gazing at everything in full bloom realizing that in seven days you're going to graduate and never come back except as an alumni and it, it suddenly hits you all of the little things that you didn't take that, that you took for granted that you know the going between classes and the rushing around and the chipping of your teeth about you know everybody riding you whether it was for military stuff or doing drill or varsity practice or, or just the general socialization in, in the dorm rooms uh and, and you realize just how, just how blessed these four years were. And oh, by all things holy, please get graduation here as soon as possible. Uh. <laughs> and, and by the way, it's called Annapolis uh, for short, because that's the town or city it's Correct. in, which happens to be one of the most beautiful towns uh, ever right there on the Chesapeake Bay. It I is. have sailed in Annapolis. There's a completely unrelated to the Naval Academy, there's a place called the Annapolis Sailing School where you can take weekend or longer courses in sailing. And at the time I did, and it was absolutely fantastic. Have, do, this is a ridiculous question, but do they actually teach you how to sail at the Naval Academy? Uh, that is one of the options. You're between your uh, plebe and youngster year, uh, which is freshman, sophomore year, uh, we had the option of either going on the yard patrol craft, which are sort of like mini wooden hull destroyers where you learn, here's how to be on a gray hull and to do 
words like galley and swab the deck and poop deck and all that sort of stuff. Uh, or a very small percentage had the option, uh, and, and you got to pick it, to do a sailing cruise. And so I, I selected that because it sounded fun. And I spent about two to three weeks sailing up and down the eastern seaboard uh, on a 44-foot sloop with 10 other or with nine other individuals. There were two officers and then eight midshipmen, and we had eight-hour, 10-hour rotations. And we sailed, we were supposed to sail to Halifax, but there was a tropical storm that was coming in. So we unfortunately had to divert to Governor's Island, uh, which was at the time a Coast Guard base. We took the free free ferry across to South Battery and spent a week walking all through Manhattan. And I took in like, we went to the USO and they had discount prices on Broadway show tickets. So, I mean, I saw Miss Saigon, I saw Damn Yankees, I saw Chicago. I mean, some of, some of the, the greatest hits and eating some of the best food. And it's while a bunch of my peers were on a, on a YP craft in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean uh, dealing with seasickness. And um, I there are very few times in a person's life when you think that was the right decision. And that was absolutely the right decision. It wasn't easy, but it was, it was fun. It was a unique experience and uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Maybe the world, but short of the world, I wouldn't trade it. Uh, where I live, I see Governor's Island pretty much every day. Oh. My part of Brooklyn, uh, it's across from Lower Manhattan. And there's Governor's Island, there's ferries there and there's things to do there in the good weather. I still haven't been there. My wife is going to persuade me. I think we will find a way to get over there. It's, it's tiny for those of you who've never been here. Um, uh, and I think it used to be where there was a fortress or a naval base or something, because it's right at, it's right south of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And um, from a tactical or strategic point of view, it would keep, it, it's designed to keep ships or a fort there would be designed to keep ships from coming up either the Hudson or the East River, I assume. I'm no tactician, I'm a, I'm a simple <laughs> lawyer. Um, I feel I like those is, two words don't, they don't go together. It's simple and lawyer. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll swing by that. When one leaves the Naval Academy, um, you know, I hear things, I don't know if they're accurate, um, but my understanding is you have a choice at that point to either fully go into the Navy or go into the Marines, which is, a, I guess I don't quite understand, are the Marines a subset or a branch of the Navy or how does that all work? Because yeah, you became uh, a Marine. I did, yes. Uh, so the way the way it works, at least, and I can only speak for, for the Naval Academy, so I don't know the other service schools, but uh, going into your senior year, you you do some stuff early on. If you're interested, do you want to be a Marine? Do you want to be a line officer in the Navy, et cetera? Uh, but really, once you get your senior year, first year, as we call it, uh, you start making noise about what you really want to do. And things that are specific to the Marine Corps, you, you kind of have to check certain boxes. Uh, there's a summer training program where you you do sort of like boot camp light, if you will, um, but as you go through your year, you begin, you, you get all these things lined up and there's a service selection and you go in front of a board and you fill out a dream sheet. Uh, and then when you come back from Christmas leave, uh, there's a service selection night. You're kind of told what it is that you've gotten based on your, based on your dream sheet. Uh, and I know when I was there, and this was several decades ago, uh, the advice that was given to me was the Marines want people who want to be Marines before they want to be anything else. And so uh, 
But to answer your question, the Marine Corps is a, it is a department of the Navy. So the Marine Corps budget is sectioned off of the Navy's budget. Uh, they are, uh, and it goes back to the history of being uh, originally security guards and snipers in the rigging of Naval ships. Uh, and then we became amphibious landing forces. And then we kind of became the, the Mikey of breakfast cereal where it's like, we don't know what to do in this uh, part of the world. Oh, we'll just send the Marines. They'll, they'll figure it out. They like everything. Uh, I, so, uh, I, and for people who are listening to this and wondering, when do we start to talk about the creative <laughs> process? Um, this is the whole point is that because Josh, we're going to talk about your writing, that adventure, but I've always it's been a short conversation. <laughs> no, <it won't. laughs> um, but I, I love to show people that there's no one way to be creative. There's no one journey. In fact, nobody has the same journey as anybody else. And um, there's no straight line in any aspect of anything in life, in my experience. Um, and that you, at the time that you entered the Naval Academy, had no idea that you were going to be a published author. I mean, I'm guessing. You, you probably didn't even have it on your list of goals. Not at all. Um, but we're not done, because I just want people to know, I, I, I don't want to get all weird on you, but I have tremendous respect for your sense of duty and um, your achievements in the military. And I'm sure I've thanked you before, but I'm gonna do it on here. Thank you for your service. This would, at a time, uh, it, it had to be very difficult. First of all, let's just back up a second. A Cobra gunship, we're jumping ahead to the Cobra gunship. <laughs> um, I'm like any other guy who's not in the military. I've always been fascinated by planes and helicopters from a young age. I grew up in the 60s and you know the space race and all that sort of jazz um, and jets and fighter planes, what have you. But um, the Cobra is uh, an attack helicopter. And rather than have me explain it in my terrible way, could you explain to people, you know, when people think helicopters, they'll think the commuter helicopter, well, those big Sigorsky things that, you know, transport stuff around or even the ones that might take wounded uh, soldiers or sailors from one place to another. But the Cobra is a very specific kind of uh, airship or, or helicopter. Can you describe for people? Sure. Yeah, Where's... it's uh, the easiest way is uh, most people are familiar with the Apache gunship that the Army has. Uh, the Cobra is uh, ironically started as an Army helicopter and the Marines kind of like 90% of what the Marines use, it tends to be hand-me-downs. And so they wound up having it handed down to them. Uh, and it's a two-seater tandem, front-seater, back-seater. Uh, we, we joke that it transports two pilots and a lot of uh, lead and missiles. And that's about, that's about it. Uh, it is, its specific role is to provide air-to-ground or close air support for the ground troops. And, and in the Marine Corps, uh, which is part of what makes the Marines uh, very special. The, the most important role is the ground troop, the, the man or the woman with a rifle who is kicking indoors. Everything else centers around that individual. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that's drilled into certainly helicopter pilots because we are only a couple of hundred feet above those men and women who are kicking indoors. And so our role was to... Uh, provide closer support protection from air to ground. Um, and whether that was turning, you know, jet fuel into rotor noise, whether that was, you know, sending hot lead down range, whether that was simply 
escorting um, what we call medevac chase, uh, taking the wounded or the, the fallen uh, to different bases. Those were the various roles, but uh, its, its job was to be uh, the big stick if a big stick needed to be wielded. Um, well, it's, I, I've seen, a, I think they're called A4, the Warthogs. Oh, the um, A10 Warthog. Yeah. A10, sorry. Because oh, yeah. uh, I lived outside of Philly and there was an air base there where they flew in and out of for some reason, um, which are these, uh, I guess they call them tank killers, and they're jet planes that travel probably slower than your Cobra. <laughs> right, uh, no, minute, actually, we, I mean, we're pretty slow. I will say that uh, if there is any airframe other than an X Wing that I wanted to fly, it was the A-10 because the A-10, I think, is the greatest machine ever invented in the history of this universe. The pilots who fly it are the kind of crazy that I respect because we would go, we would be flying over top of a city at 500 feet and the controllers would say, stay above 500 feet because the A-10s are coming in and they would be flying underneath us to go blow stuff up. And anytime you think that, uh, you are doing something crazy. There is always somebody somewhere who takes it just one step more. And you have to say, I respect the hell out of you guys for that. Well, I bet that counts also in publishing, although it doesn't have quite the um, sweat inducement that might come with flying some of those. I would disagree. If you've ever <laughs> stared at a blank page and trying to think, how do I come up with a plot and good dialogue and characters that don't sound like cliches or tropes and how do I avoid, you know, casual sexism or racism if I'm not paying attention. It, it can be, it can be stress inducing. Sometimes flying was very easy because it's just like, go here, blow this up and come home. Okay. You know. Well, you do occasionally have people trying to blow you up in the process though. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, but it's also the same as in publishing. So really it's, <laughs> Everything's just an allegory for life. I, I don't know. I have to tell you, I, I've been an attorney over 35 years and I was an agent for a significant amount of time. I never felt that I was physically in danger. Oh, well, that's, I guess, emotionally. <laughs> well, yeah, but I, I've had that all my life. Yeah, I mean, physical, <laughs> I, I think physical danger is one of those that's uh, easier to process psychologically. Emotional danger is much more complicated. It's, there are many more layers to it. So... Sometimes if you feel threatened, it can be very black and white. If you feel exposed, that gets into a lot of grays that unpack a lot of stuff that is why a lot of us become writers. No, that's interesting. Well, again, while I've never served and I never had those kind of dangers, I have sailed in some terrible weather and had some scary moments that once I got through, in a strange way, I was really thrilled that I went through those scary moments because I was able to prove some stuff to myself and staying calm and executing what needed to happen. And um, yeah, and then whatever I ate that night tasted amazing. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I had like a can of vegetable soup after yep. sailing for like eight hours on the Long Island Sound in a terrible storm with no engine, just uh, reefing a mainsail. And uh, kids, you can look that up on Google for what that means. <laughs> but um when I made it through and we were at our um, slip, no, we were actually at a mooring. Um, I had the, that soup was the greatest thing ever. Um, but I, I, I will get off of this topic in just a second, but um, uh, I think it's interesting um, with the Cobra. So you don't usually have an air to air mission. 
it's all air to ground. But I mean, it, you, it's whatever happens, I suppose, whatever shows up, you'd be prepared to handle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you, you load out for the mission that you would need. The, the Cobra is capable of firing uh, an air to air missile. Uh, the joke I always had is it's kind of like technically you can make waffles using a Porsche. Um, but it, it was one of those things where I would say predominantly for an air to air engagement, you would use um, fixed wing. But it, uh, the Cobra is capable of doing it. And we did, you know, test fire sidewinders just to, to have the experience of doing it. Um, gotcha. Which was fun, but it was, uh, our bread and butter was air to ground. Now, when did you uh, leave the Marines? And I, I, I don't know the right way to say it because you may say I've never left the Marines or whatever. I, <laughs> so when were you out of active duty? Sure. Uh, that was, it was the end of 2007. Um, is when I got out and transitioned to a civilian life and one of the well, best decisions I've made, which is not to discount the near decade that I spent uh, in the military. It was uh, at the time, you know, going through a lot of life changes and I thought I'd stay in the reserves, but the reserves were getting deployed almost as much, if not more so or longer than the uh, active duty guys. And my girlfriend, now wife at the time, was starting to get serious. I wanted to be close to my family and and it was just you kind of reach a point, I think in the, certainly in the Marine Corps, and I think in the, the military in general, that you reach a point of either, you know, you want to stay for 20 and you've got jet fuel in your veins, or you have, you know, you, you just bleed, uh, in our case, crimson and gold, and it's, this is what defines you, or you know that you're going to be hoping to make it to 20, you'll be maybe pinning on Lieutenant Colonel, uh, the realistically, I mean, I, I was, I was a good pilot. I was an exceptional shot. I knew that I was, I was always a middle of the pack kind of guy in the squadron. So I was dependable, but there were, and there, and there were folks that did, uh, two of my buddies went on to become COs and their squadrons are blessed to have had them. I would have not been a good fit as a commanding officer of, of a squadron. Cause it just didn't, it didn't bleed into me. I enjoyed the flying. I enjoyed the Marines. I, I loved our enlisted, um, but at the 10-year mark, it was, it was time to, to get out. And so I did. And, and like you said, it's, um, I did get out on a former Marine. You know, we always say ex-Marines are only in Leavenworth, and they've had their Eagle Globe and Anchor, which is our uh, logo or icon, taken away from them, uh, mainly because the Marine Corps does a good job of uh, literally branding the U.S. Marine Corps onto your soul um, to the point that, you know, there's a reason why hundred-year-old Marines will still put on their dress blues for the Marine Corps ball. Right. And again, that's not to, other services have that level of pride and, and God bless them because uh, it is a, a multi-branch service that defends the nation. I just happened to serve in one of them and it happened to be one of the smallest ones. And you always tend to love the thing that you did uh, just a teensy bit more than the thing that your friends did. Sure. What, by the way, before I leave this completely, when you were in the unit, that I was familiar with, what what was your rank and what was your position? Uh, captain and uh, man, I don't even remember what I was doing uh, flying. Uh, I we we you always double hat, so I was I can't remember if I was in the I think I was in the logistics office at that point. Um, but certainly when when you when you all were sending packages, uh, it was um, as I like to call it cowboy country. I mean, it was we went in and there was the air base that we had taken over didn't have any runway lights and you know we were putting up 
the big circus tents that could house a hundred of your closest friends. I mean, it was very much, there was a lot of influx. It was different when I went back um, second time. It was a little more established and a little, not calmer, but a, it wasn't quite as we're, we're building the ship after we've set sail kind of feeling. Right. I've heard people say things like building the plane while we're flying it. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. Drive it right on. Um, so, so you get out uh, of the service and, you know, I can't imagine what other than flying a Cobra and uh, shooting and getting shot at what you've been trained for. Although I know many times when I talk about law school, like you don't really learn that much useful law in law school, which you learn as a way of thinking and a way of approaching problems. And that's incredibly valuable. And it's why I find that a lot of different businesses, a lot of different big organizations like to have a lawyer on board not just for the legal point, but they sometimes having gone to law school is a great skill to have and they acknowledge that. I would assume the same thing is true for being an officer in the Marines and a graduate of Annapolis. So when you do come out into the marketplace, was that your experience? That people were like, oh, a, a Marine and a, you know, a combat vet and all that uh, stuff? Initially, no. Uh, and that's, that's only because when I was getting out, um, we, there was, there was beginning to be an outflux. My peer group was hitting that point of go, no, go. You're either in career or you're getting out. So there, there was certainly a, a decent number of uh, my peer group that were making the, the no-go choice. Uh, and when I got, I got out and about 47 seconds later, the housing bubble burst. So there was a lot of uh, in, there was a lot of flux. Um, it was hard to get jobs, um, which didn't bother me at first. I, I, I got out and spent about six months sleeping on my parents' couch, playing golf every day and worrying about what time I was going to put on pants and how much coffee was I going to drink that morning. Uh, but around, you know, around the five, six month mark, um, my, my girlfriend uh, and parents both said, you have to shower and you have to think about getting a job. And they were right. It was time for me to think about a career. And when I started putting my resume out, um, there was, it wasn't quite the, there weren't as many opportunities. And I think partially because the economy had taken a bit of a hit. Uh, and I, I did an interview with Lockheed Martin, which uh, is, is still, I still think they're one of the finest um, civilian corporations that do a lot of the contracting work in the government. They, they are an exceptional corporation. Uh, I did an interview and, and the hiring manager said, I'm gonna be upfront with you. Um, we're probably going to lowball you based on what you would make if this had been three years ago, but it's only because if you don't take this job, there are 10 others in line. And, um, you know, and at the time I was like, eh, sure, whatever. And, you know, it was, it was helping to support the FAA. It was uh, not flying, but it was like flying adjacent. Uh, and it was, you know, it was a good, it was a good first step to doing something that was um, flying a desk instead of, you know, Working, working with, uh, working with the Marines. How long were you with them? Lockheed, I was only with them about two years, uh, and that's just with government contracting. There's they Lockheed had a task that got moved over to a small company, and I got pulled over to work with them, and I worked with them for about five years. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a, it's a fun, varied career certainly, but it's a little bit different. But like you said, there's skill sets that I think you learn. Some people, I mean, I feel like I got them from my parents because they were 
they were wonderful people and they were good educators. And, you know, mom very much, they, they traded off each other very well. Dad, dad always had a very analytical mind and he was very good at, you know, how do you behave in a professional environment? How do you carry yourself? How do you speak? How do you present yourself? Mom was very good about, you know, here's how to build the story. Here's how to um, be empathetic and all that. So I think those were skills that I took into college. You know, college taught me how to study. And then I went to the Marine Corps and the Marine Corps was like, oh, sweetie, now we're going to, now we're really going to teach you how to study. It's like each step along the way was learning how to be a better student, both of academics and of life. And so I think by the time I got out into the civilian sector, if you will, that you had a lot of those building blocks, but there was no one single one that, that was responsible for making, it's all, it's all small pieces. I think it's really valuable to be a lifelong learner. I've heard that expression, but I'm taking it. It's, and it's accurate. <laughs> um, you know, the thing about law school, as I said, is, you know, when, when you leave law school, somebody could ask you a legal question. You're like, I don't know. They, you know, at the turn of the century, this was the law. <laughs> but now I have no idea. Like, I don't know. So, but I know how to find out. And I know how to ask the right question. And then I know how to write about it and communicate it effectively and advise somebody, given what I'm seeing. You know, it's a whole process. Um, and I feel like that's what you're telling me your uh, education has been. But also, you know, same with... Uh, being an actor or a writer or any other creative, you know, uh, once you get in the habit of doing the creative activity, it's not as if you're, you've got it handled. You just learn how to get to certain places, I, I think. I mean, uh, well, let, let's, let me ask it this way. At some point, you did decide you wanted to write. And what, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> who did that to you? I, I, my, that uh, the person who did it to me was my friend, Michelle. Uh, I was actually in flight school uh, down in Pensacola and a uh, very good friend, Michelle, we were chatting and I, I had, you know, off the cuff comments of, yeah, you know, I always thought it'd be kind of fun to write a book and write a book. And, and I think I had said it one too many times, either at the bar or uh, something. And, and finally she said, oh my goodness, shut up and just do it. And it's one of those things where I was like, okay. And so I, I actually started plotting out and trying my hand at writing in flight school. This was 2000, and, 2000 2001. Uh, and I completed that manuscript um, on my last tour in Iraq uh, during downtime between missions or operational planning. Um, and it was horrific and will never see the light of day. It was so bad. But that, that's true for every but that's published exactly, writer. Exactly. I mean, with the exception of somebody like a Patrick Rothfuss, who just simply, you know, just vomits gold uh, wherever he goes, uh, you know, or or Eric Rubin, who uh, can act his way out of the red paper bag <laughs> with aplomb. Uh, there are very few of us that can do something good the first time. And so I that's... Mean, well, you definitely didn't see me in my early times of acting and we'll leave my acting career alone for a second and, and let's sidestep to the time when your first book actually the first book that you get published happens that's like the next chapter of our story because um was that undead chaos that was that was undead chaos yep so why don't we tell the folks the plot line or the story of undead chaos 
Sure. I'll, I'll do this as a caveat of saying uh, this will not bake your brain with being the next American novel. It's a fun Saturday read that was uh, early on in my, my literary skill set. So uh, take that for what it's worth. Hey, it's but, published and it is definitely what we call genre fiction. Um, it, is, yes. it was like urban fantasy. It was uh, urban fantasy, correct. And well, uh, you know, first of all, there's nothing wrong with entertainment. <laughs> as we Thank goodness, know, because <laughs> if I will, I will fail as a literary <laughs> protege. I, uh, I, I am. Uh, yeah, I, I, I know my limitations. And, and in, in the agency, Victorus, uh, the Victorus Literary Agency that, that I'm with, um, which and we can get to that uh, based on our relationship. Sure, there are there are authors who I am in awe of the level of emotion and just the the world building and the creativity and and just the impact that they can make on your psyche and on your soul. Uh, and then uh, I like to write uh, explosions and bullets. So there's it's all it's all balance. Everything's zero sum in life. So don't we you have, have don't those, you have don't you chop some people's heads off too? Uh, probably. I, I'm trying to remember. I for some reason and, and in my books. Head. Yeah, and in my well, books that, too. Well, that's what I was. <laughs> yeah, as an attorney, I was not going to ask you point blank about you. Um, so talk to us about undead chaos, which probably is still available to people. Oh, it is. Yeah, it's it's online. Did it's a, a e-published book. Um, the basic synopsis is it kind of follows a young ish uh, warlock who has um, been away from the game for a little while due to mysterious reasons uh, is sort of getting back into it. Uh, the world and his peer group have moved on. They're much more capable. Um, one of the threads through it is that uh, in this world, magic is kind of like going to the gym. Uh, there are some people who are naturally inclined who can go to the gym and bench press 300 pounds. And then there are people like me that go and we pick up a 15 pound weight and lift it once. And we say, I'm good. I'm going to go home and have a beer. Uh, and so people, Josh <laughs> is a Marine. Okay. And if you look, he is, yeah, well, you don't, you're not a bodybuilder, but I'm confident your ability to move things around in the gym is good. But anyway, yeah, that's why I, that's why I studied <laughs> physics, get leverage, fulcrums, who was, it, and tackle. who was it who said, give me a lever and I'll move the world? Archimedes. Okay. There we go. Anyway, kids, if you want to know more about physics trivia, uh, you can write to me at isthatreallylegal.com and leave me a message, ask me questions. You can leave a message or a question for Josh and I'll make sure he gets it. But back to you. So ultimately, uh, this is a, an action adventure, urban fantasy uh, yarn very entertaining. And without my help, you got an offer of publishing from, I think it was Karina Press. Correct. And then you reached out to me and I said, let's get you more than a one book deal. And then and you did. And your career took off from there. Um, yes. Tens of readers later, it's been, uh, <laughs> no, it, it, but it's true. I mean, it's, it's, I, I've count myself very, very blessed. Um, I don't like to use the word lucky because my godfather used to say uh, luck is simply the marriage of opportunity with um, preparation. So I consider myself very blessed because I did everything backwards uh, with my publishing career. I did it all the wrong way. I didn't have an agent first. I didn't, 
you know, I had beta readers that were friends of mine from the Absolute Right Water Cooler, which is a wonderful writing forum, uh, who read through it and they gave me pointers. I stumbled into um, a, hey, Karina Press was doing a, you send us the first three chapters, we'll give you feedback. And they thought it was uh, less horrific than I guess some of the other stuff that came in. So they said, we'll, we'll, we'll give you, we'll give you a one book deal. And then Eric uh, turned around and, and said, no, no. And they said, oh, did we say one? We meant three. And uh, so that that's, I'm very blessed to have uh, someone like you that had my back. Well, thank you. And then ultimately, um, when I stopped being an agent, um, you went with my then junior agent, uh, Shannon Orso. And just as a side note, and uh, I've talked about it a little bit, but unfortunately we lost Shannon a couple of weeks ago. Um, and uh, when she passed away, you're still with Victress though, her agency, correct? correct? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and for people who didn't know Shannon, uh, well, what kind of person would I have as my intern or a junior agent, except a great one? And uh, she's been interviewed on the show. I think she was the 40th episode. Um, and you and I were both at the memorial service last week, which was uh, lovely and sad, as they always are. Um, without putting you on the spot, did you want to say anything about Shannon? It's okay if you really don't. But. No, that's that's fine. I mean, I I... There, there are people have said it both at the memorial service and, and certainly uh, on Twitter um, or within the agency's communication uh, much better than I could have. But uh, Shannon was very much a spark plug. She was the kind of person that uh, there, there are some people who uh, are blazing fires. Shannon was the kind of person that ignited those fires. And certainly, certainly with me, certainly with many of the authors at Victress, she was that kind of person. Uh, and, you know, she, she and I had a little bit of interaction when she was still your junior agent. But I remember when you were transitioning out and you and I had a conversation and uh, you said point blank that you would not have given your client list to somebody you did not feel was not just capable, but was somebody that was competent and was the right fit that was going to do something special. And for me, that was all the endorsement I needed. Uh, Shannon more than more than I don't want to say filled the shoes, but she shined so greatly because she built with Victress something that I, I would argue is unique. It is a it's a boutique literary agency. The authors are um, close to the point of family, it's very much, um, there's, there's, a, there's a bond that I think is there that I'm not aware, I mean, my experience with literary agencies is a grand total of, you know, you and her, uh, right. but it's, it, it, is, it is really something special. And that's, you know, Shan Shannon did that. And she, she took that, she brought in, you know, Liz, she brought in a team to foster that. She found talent finding talent is one thing, fostering talent is another. And there are a great number of people in the agency that, that are where they are today, simply because Shannon was the kind of person that when you sat down and had a conversation with her, you felt like you could actually do it. 
And that I think was her superpower that she was able to help you overcome the voices of inner doubt. And if there is anything that will stymie the creative mind or a loving heart, it is the person who allows themselves to get in their own way. And Shannon was Shannon gave you that push. Sometimes it was a loving stroke on the back of the, the head. Other times it was her very small boot uh, connecting <laughs> with your hindquarter um, multiple times, but she, she got people over the hump and, and it was more than just words. I mean, you, any, anybody can put words on paper. It was getting people out of their own way so that they could put, they could bear their soul and create something beautiful and, and feel confident creating something beautiful. And, and having been privileged to read many of my fellow authors in the agency, uh, they, they are, we are all better for that kind of encouragement. Uh, and I have to tell you, keep your eyes on some bookshelves because there is some masterful pieces of work that deserve to be in print because of, because of her influence. I couldn't ask for a better statement. Thank you so much. Um, she's definitely going to be missed for a long time. Um, I wanna know before I'm, I'm looking, I'm like, oh my God, the time is flying by for us. Um, what's, what are you working on now? What do you have in store for readers coming up? Uh, it, what I have, uh, what I'm working on, what I have in store for readers are two totally separate things. <laughs> okay. Uh, I have in store for readers to, totally depends on the publishing industry, um, but I have on submission a um, Western steampunk novel that uh, I personally feel is is a much higher caliber than than Undead Chaos. Um, it was a it was a joy to write. Uh, I really enjoyed the process. That's on submission. Uh, I've also got on submission a proposal for uh, what I have titled "Never Been Stung" and other lies that beekeepers tell. Uh, because my wife and I were uh, backyard beekeepers and we are so bad at it that I felt uh, compelled to write a how not to guidebook for is, those who... <laughs> I, I had a couple of things that I wanted to make sure we touched on and one of them was the beekeeping. So first of all, I didn't look it up. What is technically the science of beekeeping? There's like a word for it. Uh, well, it, I'm sure it's, I don't know. And this is the reason why I wrote uh. the book be, or wrote the proposal because I'm the last person who should be keeping bees. <laughs> I'm not sure. I know we have an apiary. Uh, okay. So that's that's one fancy scientific term that we like to use at parties to impress uh, to impress other people. You have a series of hives or one hive? We have we have right now we have six. Wow. And I've seen some things on television, like many of us, about beekeeping, and um, I know there's a big difference between different types of bees. But I'm also assuming when you interact with bees, as you seem to have indicated, there's a good chance you're going to get stung. Is that accurate? That is uh, very accurate. But it's it is also how you how you do it. Um, so I I will always suit up whenever I go out into the hive. It depends on the time of day. It depends on the time of year. I mean, in springtime, I can go into the hive and they could care less if I was banging around. But one of the things I love about beekeeping is, uh, and I'm sure I'm sure the legal world is is the same. But there's a lot of careers that are speed is the the word that best describes it. Everything happens very quickly. I need this next week. I need that you have deadlines. You have all this. 
I love beekeeping because when I walk out to the hive, I'm forced to slow down. I have to move, I have to be more controlled with my actions. I have to be very gentle about taking a frame out or putting a frame back in because the faster I move, the more it disturbs the hive and the more agitated they get. If I move slow, it decreases the likelihood that they'll get worked up. Just to be clear but, for people who don't know, but the kind of hives you're talking about, there are literally wooden frames, almost like a window frame. And the bees, I guess, take pollen from their travels, bring it back and make honey that fills in honeycombs in these frames, which you then pull out and you're able to harvest honey out of those frames and then return them to the hive. Is that correct? A fair? Okay. Yep. That's, and, that is and, and I think what's fascinating is here in New York City, I live in Brooklyn, but my understanding is that beekeeping in Manhattan, the honey is fantastic because the bees have a wide variety of flowers to choose from, uh, as opposed to some places where you know, bees are kept specifically to pollinate a particular crop. And they're, they're there mostly for pollinating, not as much for honey creation. And the honey is just not as good, I'm told. Do you, have, uh, do you have specific types of bees and specific honey that you're going for? Or what was the impetus for the whole beekeeping experience? Because I got to tell you, that's not <laughs> something a lot of people, because you also are into cars more than most people. And I find that fascinating that, you know, you, you, you build yourself out as a car collector and a beekeeper. And I, by the way, what you talked about with the slowing down, I totally get that it could almost be a meditation time for you. But anyway, sorry, I'm, I need to ask one question at a time. <laughs> Quite all right. I, I have a five-year-old, so I am very, I'm trained in how to deal with rapid fire questions and not know the answer to any of them. Okay, but anyway, I just I just can't tell you. Oh, I'll look it up for you, sweetie. It, <laughs> that, that gets a little weird. Yeah, good point. Um, but so, what was the impetus for the beekeeping? I had a phobia of bees from the time that I was about three or four years old. I got stung. I stepped on a bee in the front yard of our house in Vienna, Virginia, and I, a neighborhood kid told me, "Oh, if you get stung by a bee, you'll die." And I, for whatever reason, had an irrational quite literal screaming phobia of bees uh, through most of my adult life. And I got out of the Marine Corps, my you know girlfriend and I were getting serious and I saw this ad, we'll, we'll say for the paper uh, to be anachronistic, but there was, oh no, I was, on a, I was on a golf trip with my, that's what it was. I was on a golf trip uh, right after I'd gotten out. Um, dad took me down to Florida to play golf with my, my uh, uncle and, and his brother-in-law. And the brother-in-law had a 10-acre farm up in um, Michigan, and he leased some of the property to a beekeeper that kept a handful of hives, and his, his sharecropping was he got a percentage of the honey that was harvested. And I had never tasted anything that blew my mind like this. And he started telling me about the science of bees, that they will always build a hexagon, that the bee space is only a certain amount and anything bigger than that, they'll build comb, anything smaller, they'll fill it up because they think it's a crack. How, I mean, all of the, the, the actual mathematical, and I have a very linear mathematical brain, it just fascinated me. And I started checking out books in the library and I found a course locally about beekeeping. And I, I told my girlfriend, I, I'm gonna, I think I wanna look into this. And, and I think her response was, uh, well, it was nice knowing you. 
um, because obviously you've lost your mind. So I took right. the course and I was still blown away and I said, let's do it. And I got two hives and fell in love with beekeeping because I realized, and I think it's a very good uh, metaphor for life in general. My fear was based on ignorance. Mm. I was having been, having been rickrolled by uh, yellow jackets or ground bees uh, they are mean, angry, and they will just, they will whoop you up something fierce, but they are not honeybees. And I came to appreciate the fact that there are nuances in the natural world that I will still kill yellow jackets with a vengeance like a god uh, when I can. But the honeybees, um, I just, I fell in love with them. I, I call yeah, them I, squirrels, you know. I have a yellow jacket story. So when I lived in the Massachusetts area, I had a very old, over 100-year-old house, and they got into a crack uh, at a windowsill. And I noticed, like, we'd have occasionally have a yellow jacket in our bedroom or in another room. I was like, where are they coming from? So I found out where they were because I saw them coming and going outside to a window crack. And I went to a hardware store to get one of these spray things to attack them. And someone saw me in line with that thing and said, you're only going to piss them off and you're going to get killed. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to get killed. They're like, yeah, you have no idea. Yellow jackets will kill you. I was like, I better call an exterminator. <laughs> so, cause I also had a couple of cats and I didn't want my cats to get some. Uh, so this guy comes in and he's like, oh yeah. And he suits up, but like, he's, he's got like, you could see him go into his like samurai mind. <laughs> And he attacked them with this white powder stuff. And all of a sudden, a zillion, like I've never seen so many of anything in my life, except maybe, you know, water out on the ocean. But like the, the zillion yellow jackets come flying out of this crack. I'm a hot, I have no idea how they fit in there. But he used some kind of white powder and they, he was fully suited up and he still got stung. I have no idea how they got in. But um, he handled it because he's a pro. And I tipped him. Um, <laughs> the next day, walking out to my car, my front lawn was like the aftermath of Gettysburg in that there were just dead yellow jackets everywhere. And I mean, I didn't try to count them. Um, but I didn't feel guilty because yellow jackets are not the same as bees, as you say. Um, I don't know if they pollinate. I know they eat things. They like they don't sting they bite i mean yeah I, and they are vicious things um that was my big yellow jacket story if anybody wanted to know <laughs> i mean it's uh, that's uh, i see bees all the time when we go out for a walk in parks and they never they never bother me it, and in fact you could even like disturb the flower they're hanging out on and they'll pretty much be like look i'm just doing my thing you know right uh, of course, I wouldn't go up to a hive like yours and just stick my hand in willy-nilly. But um, so, so, but but I think it's fascinating that you talked about um, when you're frightened of something, you become fascinated by it, and then you learn about it. I've, I've been to Costa Rica, and I wasn't really wild about bats and spiders. And there's a lot of bats and spiders in Costa Rica. And after spending time with them, and being interested as opposed to frightened, it completely changed the way I look at these things. Um, do you think that has rubbed off on your writing at all? I know, I mean, 
do you see any part of creativity in this? I, I think so. Uh, I mean, from a from a very obtuse, maybe that's not the right word, but a very blunt point. Uh, I make it a I make it a point that anything I write either has bees in it or references to bees, just more of an Easter egg. So spoiler alert to anybody who ever reads one of my books, you will be reader number 11. Um, you'll probably find uh, bee references in there just because I, I love them. Um, but I, I think from a more holistic or, or more psychological standpoint, everything everything that somebody who's a, a writer goes through in some way, shape or form manifests itself in their writing, either from a very blatant standpoint or from a very subtle standpoint. And so, uh, and sometimes you're not aware of it. Uh, you know, you can write something and someone will say, oh, you, you must have written this because of, of this. And you, you pause and realize that you, that was not something you had intended, but it just came out subconsciously, if you will. Right. Um, we're going to be wrapping up shortly. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you're like, Eric, I really wanted to mention, or I'd hoped we'd bring up something. Is there anything in particular? No, I mean, really, the only things I wanted to talk about was your acting career and uh, <laughs> Shannon. And other than that, uh, it's uh, all gravy. So, <laughs> well, you are the only other person besides me that wanted to talk about my acting career. So thank you for that. For, for those uh, who are, for those who are uh, uh, playing along at home, uh, I had the privilege of seeing Eric in an off-Broadway play that Suze had written uh, where he was one of the main cast. Uh, and don't, don't let him... Don't let him uh, tell you otherwise, but he is an exceptionally good actor. You are crazy kind. Thank you. Uh, checks in the mail. Um, <laughs> uh, it, I'm confident that we could talk about more stuff and for a longer period of time, but I'm going to let you get back to your wife and children. Uh, Josh, it's awesome to be able to talk to you. People can find you on Twitter at a Cobra Misfit. Is that yes. It? Yeah. Um, and you have a, your picture is actually a G.I. Joe character, if I'm not mistaken. My picture is Booster Gold, who is uh, one of the, uh, he's, he's a DC comic book superhero that I've always liked because uh, he's billed as the greatest superhero you'll never know. Was he, so he's not a G.I. Joe character? No. Oh, my mistake. DC, DC comic book hero. I think Got that it. is it. I, I, I'm on... I go on Twitter, like on Facebook, about once every presidential election. So it's true. It's yeah. probably why you're so calm. <laughs> probably, really. Um, I, I get all my news from the Onion, and I figure that's about all I need. You know, these days it's probably the best news source. I, I mean, they do claim they are the world's greatest news source. So, and I do like the man in the street comments. Oh, it's yeah. always the same three or four people. Those same three or four much, people. Yep. Uh, I really like them. Well, Josh, on that very important note as you can hear brooklyn in the distance uh for some reason we always have motorcycle races during my podcast um it's really a pleasure to see you and talk to you um, thank you so much for being on is that really legal with eric rubin i, I appreciate it thank you for having me it's like i said it's an honor and anytime we can catch up whether it's digitally or sometime in person i am always there for it The amazing Josh Roots. Um, he's just a great guy, and I'm glad you got a chance to meet him. 
Um, you can meet lots of people. Subscribe to this podcast and then it'll just come to you automatically if you do that through Apple, iHeartRadio, whatever service you use, even Audible. I mean, I, it's about there all over the place. You can rate it also. If you have questions for Josh or any of the guests I've had or for me, or you want to know anything else, go to www.isthatreallylegal.com. Uh, there's a place we can leave comments. There's the former episodes. They're still available. You don't pay anything for this. Isn't that amazing? That could change. We don't know. Uh, we're looking for new sponsors. So if you have any ideas on who should pay money to have their products named here, let me know. Please get the booster, get the vaccines, wear a mask, take care of each other. Be well, and we're going to keep coming to you no matter what. All right? Have a good one. Bye-bye.